0: Let's uh, come to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word and we pray that Lord, you will truly teach us what you have to say to us today. Show us who the Lord Jesus is and help us to respond to him in faith and obedience. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now looks can be deceiving, you know. So uh, you can never really judge a person properly by just the externals, right? Just like you can't judge a book by its cover, so, maybe you have uh, friends from many years ago, if you are a bit older, and uh, you know, you thought they were going nowhere back then, but now they buzz you on Facebook, and then you look and you say, wow, this person is really rich and successful, right? I never expected that they would become like this. Or maybe somebody in the past was, you know, doing really well, they're going really strong at that time, and you expected great things for them, and then when you found out about them 20 years later, uh, oh, okay, they're very mediocre, very ordinary, you know, a bit disappointing. So you never know, isn't it, uh, you know, what's going to happen in life. Life has many, many unexpected twists. Now, we are drawn to stories of reversals, right? For example, why is Cinderella so popular? Because she started off poor and despised, but ended up beautifully dressed and the bride of a prince. Or Beauty and the Beast, right? Where the beast is so ugly and horrible, but he becomes a charming prince. So the, initial, the initial impression that we have of people is not always right. And that's the same in a sense with Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't strike people as somebody who would be a king. No, the Jews were looking and waiting for God's coming. Because they had gone through exile hundreds of years before Jesus came. And you know, God punished their nation and after that life was never the same again. Because there was no more king on the throne. And the hundreds of years went by, they were ruled by foreign powers, and currently they were under the Roman rule. And when they read their Bibles, these Jews, they saw that God promised that he will have a king on the throne of David to reign forever. And this king which is going to come He's going to restore Israel. He's going to bring in the end of the age. Everything will be wonderful and all nations are going to stream to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. That's what they read in their Bibles. And so they waited and they waited for this king. They called this king the Messiah. And then Jesus came along on the scene and yes, he is, he's quite amazing. He does amazing things. Yes, he has a lot of authority but then he's a difficult person to figure out. See, he hasn't got any kingly appearance. He doesn't have an army. He just has a, a rebel crowd of you know, uneducated fishermen and tax collectors tra- tagging along with him. And we read Mark from the beginning for 1st chapter, 2nd chapter, 3rd, and only until chapter 8. Somebody finally says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. That is Peter in chapter 8. But then Jesus says, don't go and tell anyone. huh? Don't tell anyone. So even though, you see, it's strange, Jesus is hard to figure out. Even though his disciples call Jesus the Messiah, they do not really understand what he means by him being the Messiah. And so Jesus doesn't want them to tell other people because they get the wrong understanding. See, none of them understand his true mission as Messiah. Jesus says, this is my mission, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. But I'm going there not to conquer. I'm going there not to convince the leaders who I really am. I'm not going there to claim the throne. I'm going there to die. I'm going there to be rejected. No wonder the disciples were so afraid as they were going to Jerusalem with him. If you look at chapter 10, the, before that one, they were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, and those who followed were afraid. And again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death. And he will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later he will rise. See, Jesus is going to Jerusalem with one purpose, that is to die. And now in chapter 11... The journey is coming to an end, and he's not far from the gates of Jerusalem. His mission will soon be accomplished. So, what does Jesus do? Well, for the first time, Jesus throws off all the secrecy and reveals openly who he is that he is the Messiah. So, if you look at chapter 11, verse 1 to 6, it tells us that Jesus told two of his disciples to go and get a cult. The cult is a, a young offspring of a donkey, a the picture that was this one, okay, it's a cult. Now, Jesus wants to make a big statement about himself. Okay, it, that time was just before the Passover feast, about a week before the Passover feast, and you know, everybody would be streaming to Jerusalem from Galilee, from all the Jewish places, even from beyond Palestine, there'd be lots of pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem and they were all supposed to travel by foot if they could. That's how pilgrims go into Jerusalem. But, if you were riding on a donkey, you would attract a lot of attention. It's just like if I came to church in a stretch limousine. That would be, attract a lot of attention. Okay. So that is one uh, meaning of what Jesus did, riding on a donkey. But another meaning is that we need to understand the Old Testament background. Okay, on the next slide, the Old Testament Zechariah said these words. Rejoice greatly daughter Zion, shout daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So Zechariah prophesied that God's king, the Messiah, is coming. And when he comes, he will enter his city, Jerusalem, on a donkey. Not on a mighty war horse, but on a humble donkey. Why is that? Because the Messiah has not come to make war, to pick a fight with the Romans. He has come to proclaim peace. He's come to remove the chariots, the war horses, all the e- equipment of war. And he's going to proclaim peace to the nations and rule over them. That is his mission. Jesus is making a statement, isn't he? Riding to Jerusalem on a donkey has a symbolic meaning. That is, he's saying, I am the Messiah. And he's also saying, what kind of a Messiah am I? Well, I am the Messiah who has not come to make war, but to bring peace. To bring peace between you and God. Now, verse 2 says that Jesus wanted a colt that nobody had ever ridden before. And that is significant because in those times, a king's horse was not allowed to be ridden by anybody. Only the king was allowed to ride his own animal. This is a kingly animal, fit for a king. And verses 7 to 8 say that the disciples threw their cloaks over the colt and Jesus sat on it, and the people took their cloaks, put it on the ground, put uh, palm branches uh, on the fields. So what is the meaning of all that? Well, it is to say, you are the king. You see, in those times, that's what they would do to welcome a VVVIP, right? They would welcome a king by doing that. It's a sign that they are honoring him, acknowledging him to be the king. And in verse 9 to 10, the people around him shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think That's on the, probably on the next slide. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, you can see from here that this, uh, what they're saying actually echoes an Old Testament psalm. See, the the first two lines of, of, of that side come straight from this Psalm 118 in the Old Testament. And Psalm 118, we haven't got enough time to go through the whole psalm, but it is about a king who did battle with the nations, who, who God enabled to win and gain victory. And this king is giving thanks to God for helping him fight against the enemies. And as this king walks towards Jerusalem to the temple, he's coming in a royal procession, singing praise to God, and the people respond by singing these words to him, back to the king. They say, Lord save us, which is Hosanna in the Hebrew language. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and He has made His light shine on us with bowls in hand join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. So Hosanna is a cry of a prayer to God to save but as at the same time it's praise to God for having saved them through the King. And so the people in Jerusalem know the significance of these words and they are shouting Hosanna! To the son of David. Hosanna. Jesus is king. That's what they're actually saying. They say blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Now, God promised to David long before that he would have this king on the throne as I mentioned before. And these people who see Jesus riding the donkey, they believe that Jesus is this king who is going to rule forever. Jesus will rule the coming kingdom of their father David. But then, They still don't understand Jesus fully, of course. They probably think that Jesus is coming to have a military rule, a military kingdom. And they don't understand what kind of Messiah Jesus is going to be. But at least, at least they are right that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of David and the one that God has promised so long ago to send to his people to save them. Now Jesus goes up to Jerusalem as the king of Israel. And you might expect a royal welcome for Jesus, right? But what happens in verse 11? What happens when he actually enters Jerusalem and arrives at the temple? What kind of reception does he get? Well, there is silence. He's not mentioned. There's no welcoming party for Jesus. These crowds have just disappeared from the scene, right? We don't know where they've gone. The temple authorities are not interested in Jesus. Jesus. Everything is just business as usual in the temple. Okay. It's very, very anticlimactic, right? And you know what? The Old Testament prophet Malachi predicted that one day God would f- suddenly come to his temple. Spot check. Okay, I'll show you the verse from Malachi. Okay. Malachi chapter 3. I will send my messenger, he's referring to John the Baptist, who will prepare the way before me and then suddenly the Lord who you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a laundress soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And in verse 5, And so I will come to put you on trial I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers, who oppress the widow and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord. Now, in Malachi, God says that Jesus, the Lord, he will come suddenly to his temple. And what is he coming to do? Well, he's not just coming to save and to restore the people of Israel. He's coming to purify and judge. It's going to be a scary day when God comes to his temple. He's going to scrutinize it. He's going to scrutinize everyone there. And in fact, the next chapter of Malachi says this. Chapter 4. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of their children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now that is the last verse in the Old Testament. A threat of judgment. See, the coming of the Lord is a serious matter. Judgment is coming, God says. So before the Lord comes to his temple, he's going to send Elijah to first try to bring the people to repentance. And hopefully they will repent and avoid the judgment that is coming. And God will not have to come and strike the land with a curse. And who is this Elijah? Well, two chapters ago in Mark 9, we read that Elijah is John the Baptist. But John the Baptist came and he did preach repentance, but what happened? People did not listen, they did not repent, and he was killed in the end. And Jesus says that just in, in, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus says, just as they rejected Elijah, they are going to reject the Son of Man and they are going to kill him. Just as they rejected God's messenger who prepares the way, they are going to reject God's Lord who comes to his temple. And so that is exactly what happens in verse 11. When Jesus comes to his temple, he comes to check out what's going on in the temple. Notice that he walks in the temple, had a good look around at everything. But nobody recognizes him as Lord of the temple. And the one they've been expecting so long to come, Nobody cares. And he was rejected. And so Jesus leaves and goes to Bethany, he says. And what happens on the next day? Well, verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now this is a very, very strange incident, right? What is it doing here? Okay. Now this is the only miracle that Jesus ever did to destroy something. And the problem for us is that Jesus doesn't even seem to have a very good reason to destroy it, right? I mean, come on, it's not even the season for figs. Why? Of course, he wouldn't expect to find figs. What are you thinking about? You know, was Jesus just in a bad mood that day? You know, you know, maybe his hunger made him lose his temper on the poor tree. Well, actually, firstly, uh, we need to understand something about fig trees. Like, okay, I found this out this week. Now, apparently, in winter, I'll show you a picture. This is a fig tree on the right-hand side, a very big tree. Okay, so can you can understand why the disciples were so surprised the next day when that tree withered? Okay. Now, the next picture. Okay, apparently in winter, uh, fig trees do not have leaves. Okay, but they start growing little knobs of fruit, small fruit, like those green things, I think. Okay, so, uh, and then later on, after the fruit, little fruit buds come out, okay, when spring comes along, the leaves start coming out, and by that time, all these little fruit buds are already there. They are not ripe figs like the ones there, they're not yet ripe. So that's why it's not the season for figs. However, those little green things can be eaten as well. Okay, so Jesus, when he went to the tree, would have expected to see little green buds that he could eat, apparently. So Jesus is actually cursing the tree because from far away, it seems to promise something. But when he comes up to it, it doesn't deliver. And secondly, we need to read this fig tree incident in the context of Mark to understand what is its meaning. The story of the fig tree cursing and the story of Jesus clearing the temple are tied up together in a certain structure. So I'll show you the next slide. You can see that in verse 12 to 14, Jesus talks about the cursing of the fig tree. Okay, then he talks about the clearing of the temple. Then Mark goes back to the withering of the fig tree. And this is a, a kind of device that Mark loves to use to link things together. Okay, now you won't find this structure in Matthew's Gospel even though he talks about the same event, But Mark does this to make a point that the fig tree and the temple things are connected in some way. He does it in other parts as well. For example, on the next slide, I'll show you some examples. In chapter 5, when we looked at it, we saw that he talked about Jairus' daughter. He went off to the woman with the bleeding problem, then he came back to Jairus' daughter again to show, to link, that all these things have to do with what kind of faith we must have in Jesus. Or this side, where Jesus sends out the 12 disciples, And then he talks about John the Baptist's death and then he comes back to the twelfth returning to Jesus again to show us that doing work for Jesus involves suffering. That is the link. So what is the link in our fig tree situation? If you go back to the previous slide. Yeah. What is the link here? Well, Mark, whenever okay, coming so with the fig tree incident, Jesus is not cursing the fig tree just because he's having a bad day. Not just because he's losing, he lost his temper. It is actually a symbolic action. It's a symbolic action by Jesus. Okay, now, symbolic actions are common in the Old Testament. Let me show you some examples. Okay, so if you move two slides down. Okay, in Isaiah chapter 20, God told Isaiah to go naked and barefoot for three years. Okay, Now, you wouldn't want to be a prophet in those times, right? Um, he had to do this To show that God was cursing the people of Egypt and that these people would one day also go into exile naked and barefoot. And Jeremiah, uh, this is only one example, Jeremiah had to take a, a, a jar and smash it to symbolize that that is what God is going to do to Jerusalem. See, there are lots of these acted out prophecies in the Old Testament. Ezekiel is full of them as well. So Jesus is actually acting out a parable of judgment. He's actually acting out a prophecy on Jerusalem, on the temple. He curses the fig tree which is full of leaves, but has no fruit on it. And what does that mean? It means that there is a symbol here. He is denouncing those people who are supposed to have spiritual fruit, who from the outside look like they have a lot of spiritual activity, but they're all just outward show. There's nothing, no substance, no fruit. And so he condemns them. And who does he condemn? Well, let's look at the middle of the sandwich, which is the, uh, f- verses 15 to 19. Okay, let me read to you verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Now in those days, Jews went from all over the place to worship God at Jerusalem because that was the only place they were allowed to offer sacrifices to God. It was the only place in a sense, to, to offer prayers. So those traders were doing the people a favor, right? Imagine if you live in Galilee, you don't want to be lugging your bull or your goat all the way down to Jerusalem, hundreds of miles, right, to sacrifice at the temple. Of course, you want to go there and buy one there. So they're actually providing a, a service, a valuable service. So why does Jesus chase them out and stop them from carrying out their trade? Now some people say that well it's because they were being dishonest Jesus called them the den of robbers right so they're actually being dishonest they were cheating and they were charging more than they should but actually firstly there's no evidence that they were doing that and secondly Jesus chases out all the buyers as well as well as the sellers. Now the reason that Jesus gives is not that he doesn't want them to be buying and selling or that they are being dishonest in their buying and selling he says this house is not meant for this purpose. You know, you could have done it outside the temple. Why are you doing it inside the temple? The temple is only meant to be a house of prayer, only meant for worship. That is Jesus' point. So in the Old Testament, uh, in Isaiah, God promised that he would welcome Gentiles into his house. Now this is where Jesus quotes from, so let me explain to you. Okay? In Isaiah 56, this is what um, God says. Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus quotes from Isaiah when he says, Is it not written... This house is a house of prayer for all nations. You see, the, the buying and the selling uh, was taking part in the place inside the temple which was called the Court of the Gentiles. Okay, Let me show you a picture. This is apparently a model of the temple, what people imagine it looked like. And the building itself is a temple proper, but the courts around it, the huge spaces around it, that's all the court of the of the Gentiles. That was the only place that the Gentiles were allowed to go near. They were not allowed inside the temple because they would be stoned to death if they went inside. But you see, if you set up the whole place, make it into a Lang out here, what's going to happen? There's no space for the Gentiles to pray and to worship God. In other words, you are saying that we don't want Gentiles here. Gentiles are not welcome. They, but that is against what God says in Isaiah. So Jesus is condemning these people not just for turning the house of prayer into a market but also for excluding Gentiles and all nations from God's house. And then Jesus quotes another Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah also said things against uh, the Jews for their, uh, for their attitude toward the temple. Okay, So in Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, let me just turn to the next slide. In Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah warns the people of Jerusalem not to have a false sense of security in the temple. Okay, because these people, they thought to themselves, uh, we have the temple of God. The temple of God, the Mount Zion, this is indestructible. God will never destroy this temple. God will never destroy it because that's where he lives, right? So we can live whatever way we like and God will still look after us because we have the temple with us. And so Jeremiah says, Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury and burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. We are safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So they felt safe because you know, they committed all these sins, and then they said, oh, we have the temple. Now, when Jeremiah says then of robbers, he's not actually saying that there were actual robbers. Of course, there might have been some. But what he's saying is it's like a metaphor. He's saying, what do robbers do? They go out there, they rob you, take all the things, and then they go back to their cave and they hide out and feel very safe there. Nobody will find them there. And that's what these people were like. See, they sin and sin and sin, but they treat the house of God as a kind of security Blanket, if you like. Right? They were abusing the house of God. They were treating it with disrespect. They are treating it as a false hope of security. That's the problem. And so Jeremiah goes on to say in the very next verse, on the next slide, he predicts that this temple will be destroyed. He says, Therefore what I did to Shiloh, Shiloh was a previous place where the people of Israel used to worship God. What I did to Shiloh I will now do to the house that bears my name the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors, I will thrust you from my presence just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. So because that was their attitude to the temple, God says, I am going to destroy this temple. And that is what Jesus is doing here as well. Jesus is pronouncing judgment on the temple. You see, in clearing the temple like that, He's not just trying to tell them, get your act together, He's telling them, your last chance has gone. The temple's fate is sealed, its judgment is certain, and Jesus' action is basically condemning this temple to destruction. And it's a preview of what is going to happen on that day when this temple is destroyed. And that's exactly what Jesus does uh, in Mark chapter 13, uh, two chapters down, that's our passage for next week, we'll look at how Jesus says that he's, the temple will be destroyed and not a single stone will remain on each other. And now we can see how the temple clearing incident ties in with the fig tree incident, right? On the next day, Jesus, it says in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots and Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. So this structure of the passage tells us that these two things are linked. The whole thing is a symbolic pronouncement of judgment. Judgment against the temple. judgments against the leaders of the temple who made it this way. And, if, and so the temple is doomed and Jesus is not looking to reform the temple. But Jesus is looking to replace the temple. Now how is he going to replace the temple? Well, let's look at verses 22 to 25. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their hearts, but believe that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now this is another odd passage, right? I mean, if the fig tree and the temple were about Jesus going to destroy the temple, then why does Jesus suddenly start talking about prayer here? It seems unrelated. What's the connection between judgment on the temple and prayer? Well, Jesus has told us the link earlier on. See, the temple... Is the house of prayer in the Old Testament? It's a house of prayer for all nations. Now, if the temple is destroyed, what is going to happen to prayer? You see, in fact, the Jews, when the temple was destroyed, 70, uh, about forty years after this event, the temple was destroyed. The Jews, the Jewish rabbis, wrote that now God no longer hears our prayers. The doors, the gates of heaven, are closed to our prayers because there's no more temple to pray in. And the temple was also a place. To get forgiveness, right? Because that's where you went to sacrifice animals to God so that God will forgive you. So if there's no more temple, how do we get forgiven by God? Jesus says, after the temple is destroyed, there will still be prayer and there will still be forgiveness. See, the temple is no longer necessary for prayer or for forgiveness. The temple will be replaced and now, the temple is God's new people, the people who pray in faith to God, who trust in Jesus. This is the true temple of God. And so, how does this temple come about? Is by Jesus going to die. See, by Jesus dying, he is able to create a new temple, a new place where people can come to meet God and have their sins taken away. That person is Jesus. And so, Excuse me. And so, the way that Mark has structured this fig tree story is very uh, complex in a way, right? Because he has two lessons from it. The first lesson is a negative lesson about the temple. It says the temple will be destroyed. But the second lesson from this fig tree uh, thing is a positive lesson about prayer. Jesus says that in, in verse 22 that the miracle of the withered fig tree is an example of answered prayer. When Jesus cursed the tree, it's like Jesus praying to God to curse that tree. And that tree wither. What 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 an impossible thing. And when Jesus says, this mountain thrown into the sea, he could have been referring to Jerusalem temple which was built on a mountain. Okay, maybe. If that's the case, if Jesus says this temple is going to be destroyed, it was a huge, huge complex. Well, God will still do it. See, prayer will be answered. That's what Jesus is saying. If you have faith, prayer will be answered. So Jesus is telling us there are two conditions for answered prayer. The first condition is faith. Now, when Jesus says, whatever uh, you ask for in faith, uh, it will be done for you. It seems to us like a blanket promise. Right? Like a blank check for us to pray whatever we want. As long as we have enough faith, then uh, we believe hard enough, God is going to give it to us. Right? And we know from our experience sometimes that it's not true. So some people say, well, you, you don't have enough faith. You know, when you pray, you must be very, very specific. Visualize everything that you want. Don't just say, I want a car. Say, I want what kind of car, co- what model, what color, everything. Okay? So, that's what people say. Now, if, if we think like this, we don't understand what faith really is. You see, faith is not faith in prayer itself. And faith is not faith in faith itself. But faith is faith in God. You see, prayer is not a magic formula which has automatic results if you happen to do it the right way. Prayer is expressing trust in a person. Prayer comes out of a relationship with somebody who loves us, which is our Heavenly Father. So it doesn't mean that if you have enough faith, you know, you can twist God's arm, manipulate Him, give, make Him do whatever you want Him to do. Now, some people say, well, if God doesn't answer my prayer, that means he's useless. He's a useless God. He's powerless or he doesn't care about me. Okay? Now, it's like when a child asks for things that their parents don't want to give to them. Let's say you ask for, I want this computer game. Okay? And your father says, no. Now, the child might go and suck and say, oh, my father doesn't love me. He doesn't have enough money to buy this for me, whatever. But the truth may be that there's another reason why he didn't get it. Okay? They could be doing it for a very different reason. And that is the attitude of faith, of trust in God. That whatever answer we get from God, that is the answer that God wants to give us because of his love for us. See, having faith in God means knowing that God is powerful enough to give us what we want, but he doesn't want us to have it. He knows what is best. He's always loving and good to us. So do you have faith that believes this about God? It is very hard. So there is an unspoken assumption here in Jesus' words that God will give us anything that we ask for in faith provided it is according to God's will and is for our interests. Now Jesus doesn't emphasize this because he's not writing a textbook on prayer and giving you, you know, 10 things to fulfill for prayer. He's just trying to make one point here. A very simple point. That you need to have faith for effective prayer. Now, Jesus prayed that the fig tree will be destroyed and it was withered the next day. The massive temple will be destroyed within 30 years or 40 years. Jesus prayed also in chapter 14 later on and we'll come to that eventually that God would remove the cup of suffering from him of the cross. And what happened? He still had to go through it. You see, he didn't get that prayer answered. So what Jesus teaches us here is not that enough faith is going to get us everything that we ask for, everything that we want, but he's saying to have faith in God. And therefore, if you trust in God, pray to him in this faith. Ask him for the things that you need and trust him whatever answer you get. That is what prayer is about. And the second condition for effective prayer is forgiveness. Verse 25 says that we must forgive those who have wronged us so that God will forgive us. Now, it's not that by forgiving others, somehow we have earned the right to be forgiven by God. No, it means that when we experience God's forgiveness, somehow this mercy that we experience must change us, must transform us into people who are able to forgive. See, those people who receive mercy must become people who show mercy also. God only forgives those people who are truly repentant. But if you are truly repentant, it means that you recognize the depth of your sin, how much you have sinned against God. And when you realize that God forgive, forgave all of this sin and you just have a little bit to forgive, then you will surely be able to tell yourself, I need to forgive this as well. So, I guess to sum it up, we can still have a relationship with God, even though the temple is gone. It is destroyed. But Jesus' death enables us to have a new uh, temple, in a sense, not a temple with priesthood and sacrifices like the old temple. But those who believe in Jesus can still approach God in prayer and can still be forgiven of their sins because of Jesus. So, but Jesus says you must come to God in faith and in a forgiving spirit. So in today's passage, there are two ways to respond to Jesus. One way is to ignore Jesus and reject his authority. Now, uh, these people who did that to Jesus, they are not criminals, they are not murderers. They are people who read the Bible studiously. They are people who go to worship God religiously at the temple, who feel quite certain that they will be saved. But it was all outward. There was no fruit in their lives. See, they did not really believe in Jesus and they were basically trusting in themselves. They turned away from God. They hardened their heart against Jesus. They refused to see who Jesus really was. And these are the people whom God condemns. But the other response to Jesus is to be like those people on the road who hailed Jesus as king is to be like his disciples. That is the right way to respond to Jesus. Now, what are the things that we must do in that response? Well, firstly, faith. It means to believe in Jesus, to believe that Jesus is God's king and that he is the true temple, the only meeting place between God and man. Now, it wasn't obvious at all to those people of of Jesus' time that he was the king. All they saw was this guy on a donkey. So what? All they saw was a try-hard guy with lots of like, you know, cannot make it kind of disciples to, you know, try to claim authority in a temple. So what? But you see, they, it's only with the eyes of faith. That you can see who Jesus really is. That you can see that Jesus is the Prince of Peace as described by Zechariah. It's only with the eyes of faith that you can see that He is the Lord and the King of Glory coming to His temple as described in Malachi and in the Psalms. We need to see who Jesus truly is through the eyes of faith. And one day our faith will become sight. That is what we now believe we will one day see with our own eyes. And Jesus' glory will no longer be hidden, but it will be revealed to the whole world. Now faith is not just believing intellectually. Faith must lead to bearing fruit. It's no use to say, I believe, I believe, and go through all the motions when our lives show no evidence that we believe. It's like a fig tree full of leaf, but no fruit. Now faith must make a difference in our lives. So how should we express our faith in our lives? Well, today's passage teaches us two things. One is that we must be people of prayer. Now I was reading this um, uh, article written by an Australian Christian called John Dixon. And he said that for many years he, uh, he used to evangelize people. You know, he's an evangelist. He used to evangelize and he pushed everybody in the church to go and evangelize. But he ignored the most basic evangelistic activity, which is, Prayer. See, so often he said, we focus on our skill, we focus on our style, we focus on our creativity, but we do not ask God to send out, uh, to to prepare the harvest. You see, we do not ask God, and evangelism is primarily an activity that God does, and that's just not for evangelism. That's for every part of our Christian lives as well. So I find that. You know, you ask me to sit down and write a sermon, prepare a Bible study, read, think, analyze. Actually, I don't find it that hard. It is hard, but not that hard. The hardest thing I find to do is to pray. I find it hard to pray. Because I feel like I'm not doing anything to meet that deadline, right? It's like, okay, pray, pray, pray. So what happened after that? It's it's intangible. It's hidden. Okay? You can't see it. You can't measure it. And yet, it is more important than so many things that I do. We need to be people of prayer. So let us be people who seek God in prayer with faith, with complete trust and dependence on God, knowing that He is a loving Father that we can trust. And the second thing is we must be people who are willing to forgive. He says that forgiving people is not optional. It is something that God demands. It is a prerequisite to being forgiven by God. And sometimes we, we say, well, I can forgive but I cannot forget. And of course, we can't forget in a sense of erasing it from our memories, right? Nobody can do that, okay? But in one sense, we should forget in a sense of not dragging it out again and again, not letting it determine how we treat that other person from now on. See, because that's how God forgives us. God may not have literally forgotten what we did in the past, but God never takes it into account in how He deals with us. And that it's how we ought to forgive. We must be willing to forgive those who have wronged us. And if we have wronged others, we should ask for forgiveness too. And we must do it so that God will forgive us. Now, In 2008, um, I read this, that uh, a guy in the US, a 78-year-old guy was driving his car on the highway. And uh, approaching him was this huge oversized corn shredding machine which was sticking out two feet into his lane, okay, and uh, it clipped his car, and the car veered off, and he died instantly. And his wife survived. And there was no flashing lights, no warning car, no flags, nothing like that. Okay, and this case went to court, and he, this driver of that, that, that oversized vehicle pleaded guilty to homicide, and reckless driving, and other charges. And the family, the wife of this man who died, told the judge we don't want you to send him to jail because he is remorseful he he is uh, truly sorry for what he has done wrong and we don't want you to send him to prison and so he got off very light he got off with uh, 100 hours of community service and 90 days of house arrest now this family uh, apparently was a, a Christian family from a Presbyterian church, in fact, in America. And the defense lawyer said afterwards, he said this, he said, as a child I learned about forgiveness, but I never saw it until that day. Now this is a small picture of what it means for God to forgive us. So let us be forgiving people like that. So as we end, let us remember Jesus is God's King who comes to judge and to save. And we must respond to him by believing in him and by bearing fruit for him in our lives. And so may God give us strength to be people like that, to pray in complete trust and to forgive those who have wronged us. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we give thanks for Jesus, our Lord, our King, our God. And we thank you for giving us the eyes of faith to recognize that he is the Messiah of Israel, he is the ruler of all nations and the Prince of Peace. Thank you that he came to bring peace and reconcile us who are unworthy sinners to you at great cost to himself, at the cost of his death on the cross. Help us never to belittle or take for granted what you have done for us but and what you demand of us. You require us to believe in you and to bear fruit in our lives. So please help us to do so and live lives that are in keeping with our faith. And you require that we show our faith by being prayerful and live it out by forgiving others. Forgive us that we have not done so, that we often refuse to do so and give us the strength to obey you that you may forgive our sins. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.